You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everyone? I'm Matt Migaki, the vocalist of Cryptopsy and the host of the Vox and Hops Metal Podcast, where I sit down with fellow metal musicians. We talk all about their lives and music while sharing killer craft beers. If you've ever wanted to sneak backstage and share a beer with one of your favorite musicians, well, Vox and Hops is the podcast for you. This week on the podcast, I had an amazing conversation with Morgan Lander and S.J. Jones about Kitty Pig. There is this episode and over 450 other ones to help you enjoy life, metal, and craft beer. So what are you waiting for? It's time to become a Vox and Hops head. Cheers! You're now listening to episode 5 of Fly in the Call, Candid Conversations on Music. After episode one, this feels like the first milestone number-wise for the podcast, so I want to take a quick minute to thank you listeners for all the support you've given me so far. A lot of people have come out of the woodwork and let me know directly how much they enjoy the show, and that means so much to me. While I'm thinking of it, if you could take a few seconds to subscribe to the podcast wherever you're listening, that would be so appreciated. And if you take the tiny extra bit of effort to rate or review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, that would mean even more to me. Any way you can help spread the word will help me get the musicians I interview and love to even more ears, which is truly the goal of Fly on the Call. Now on to our guest. Episode 5 is the first to feature a musician whose main genre would not be considered rock, though there are certainly elements of that in her music. Lizzie No is a country artist who has put out one of the best-sounding records I've heard all year in her sophomore album, Vanity. She is a multi-instrumentalist, an amazing storyteller, and was a joy to talk to. Twice, actually, because of technical difficulties. I grew up on country music and first listened to Lizzie No because her backing band features the equally awesome Bartiz Strange, so this episode is altogether a special one for me, and I'm excited to share it. So strap in, sit back, and enjoy. I'm just kind of curious about like the storytelling aspects of your uh, your music and writing. Um, could you talk a sure. little bit about like how you developed that kind of style? Yeah, I mean, I listened. It it's just comes from listening and reading a lot, I guess. Um, people, music that I liked growing up is kind of what I emulated. So, like, I really loved Tracy Chapman growing up. Um, I listened to a lot of Brandy Carlile in high school. Um, And James Taylor, even when I was little, songwriters like that who tell great stories in their songs. And so you you have to copy other people before you can do it on your own. So I guess the people that I was most drawn to were people that uh, were storytellers as well as musicians. So that's probably like where that impulse came from in me. and I like song, I love songs that just sort of create a mood and paint a picture, but I think the storytelling stuff is what stuck with me the most. Mm-hmm. And I mean, I know for like the kind of main single on the album, Narcissist, you kind of like took a an older story and kind of like flipped it on its head. Could you talk a little bit about that in the process of um, like coming up with that song? Yeah, um, Narcissus, it was, it took a lot of layers. Um, it started out with just kind of being your run-of-the-mill country breakup song, I guess. Um, 
but during the time that I was, I was going about writing it and writing from my own experience, um, I was reminded of, you know, that time in the sixth grade when we studied Greek mythology and the, and the, the myth of Narcissus, which is a really interesting one. Um, as the story goes, Narcissus was this really vain, beautiful young hunter who, um, you know, spurned every woman in his path and could only love himself. Um, and he was, he rejected this nymph, Echo, who loved him and, you know, was kind of doomed to follow him around, echoing, echoing his words in the, in the forest forevermore. Um, and as a punishment, of course, he had to look at his own reflection in the surface of a river until he fell into the water and drowned. Um, and for some reason, I found myself thinking a lot about that story and thinking about Echo's agency in it, which is sort of absent from a lot of the traditional tellings. Like it really is all about Narcissus as the villain and her as this sort of innocent. Um, but in the real world, everyone has agency and everyone makes choices. And sometimes we're drawn to the wrong people for important reasons, maybe because we see something in them that we want to see reflected in ourselves. So I wanted to do a little bit of writing from her point of view to kind of reclaim agency when I was, when I was feeling down myself. Um, and, and you come to realize that like, if you're being really honest, we've all been the narcissist. We've all been the echo. We've all been the Greek chorus telling a friend, no, don't do it. Like we've all been all of these characters. So it was kind of fun to write a song from all three perspectives and do the music video from all three perspectives as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and can you talk a little bit more about the music video? I know you, you recently were part of that uh, music video festival. Yes, the Austin Music Video Festival. The music video is like one of the most fun things I've ever done. So Mary Glenn Frederick is a longtime friend and a collaborator of mine. Um, and so we had the idea that we wanted to have all three of these characters, both Narcissus, Echo, and then Tiresias, like the oracle, the voice of reason, the kind of all-knowing best friend auntie character who's going to tell you like no girl don't do it um and we, at first i like i had the idea of like will we cast actors for all of these people um do we want to see all three characters and the more i thought about it the more we kind of thought it would be fun to have me play all of the characters because in a way all of these characters come from the same ego um and we kind of vision boarded out like what is our dream location? What does it look like? And we sort of thought this like idyllic ancient Greek paradise. Um, and what ended up happening was that Mary Glenn is also an actress in her own right. Um, and she was doing a show out in the Hamptons last summer. And when she got to the location on this beautiful like house on these, on these vast grounds with barns and statues, she called me and she was like, this is the only place we can film this, this video. You have to get out here. <laughs> so I like drove overnight to see her. We had a day and a half to film. We ran all over this huge property, this arboretum, um, and had a blast playing all three of these characters. Um, and that's like the video that you see. We were, it was just the two of us, you know, one woman crew. Um, and then we hired two incredible dancers to have that sort of triumphant, he ain't shit dance at the end. <laughs> I mean, that's really interesting, too, like how you mentioned, like, kind of like, oh, like, all the characters are you at one point in your life, and then that you had that show through in the music video. That's a really cool, like, connection to it that maybe people wouldn't realize immediately. Thank you. Well, yeah, I mean, I think for me, the thing about Narcissus 
that's fun for me is realizing that there are so many songs that I there I could have written a song of like here's this low down dirty scoundrel who did me wrong which it which could have been a fun song <laughs> all on its own but I thought it would be more interesting to take on a little bit more of the responsibility of like I've been all of these things I've been the villain I've been the echo I've been the person who knows better um and what does it look like when all of those people talk to each other mm-hmm. and i mean generally i would say like that uh vanity is kind of more definitely like brighter and kind of more full than um hard one was could you talk a little bit about like the the growth between the two albums that you had oh yeah um yeah i mean i think they definitely have relationship because they're both by like both I wrote the songs on both so to my ear you know they sound similar and then it's in the production and the arrangement and the whole process of recording where things start to go in various different directions so I think probably the main difference between Vanity and Hard One are the artists that we listened to as references and the the sounds that we were trying to emulate. So like we had just sort of a different set of influences going into album number two, um, listened to a little bit more like rock stuff, more commercial country stuff uh, and pop stuff that kind of influenced where we went and, and took it away from that more traditional folk stringy sound of hard one. Um, so Nick, uh, Nick Rapley, my co-producer and I ended up putting a, putting together this uh, fun Spotify playlist of all the artists that we listened to um, for references in the studio. And it was everything from like Weezer to Jason Isbell to Amy Mann to Sheryl Crow to The National and like everything in between. Um, so it was really fun to take a look back and see all of the different sounds that we had in mind to make this kind of bigger, rockier album. Yeah, I'd, hearing you list off those influences, it makes a lot more sense why like Vanity clicked even more with me. Like I really enjoyed Hard One. Oh, thank but you. But then when once I heard Vanity, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like really amazing. Um, can you talk a little bit about like that that change in re- in references like what kind of sparked that in you to kind of go in a different sort of direction that's interesting you know i i think it for me it actually just had to do with how hard one to me feels like i really wanted to just make a very stringy very meditative folk album that was all about process and all about work um and I think that we really achieved that with that album. Like it's very intimate. Um, and to me, it still feels like a good friend, right? Like those like stories are, are really about the storytelling. And then I kind of had this thought of like, what if we just went a little wackier and, and like felt like we were going a little harder and having more fun on Vanity. Um, so it was just that impulse to like, let's be a little more extra on this next album. And like, what if it's okay to let a little bit more of a pop influence in? Like, what does that sound like? Um, and then I would say that like Nick and Bartiz, who played a lot of the guitars on the album, and Bartiz also had some some production uh, help on the record. Like, they often would reference Tom Petty when they were recording guitar parts, and I think that that kind of shine uh, finds its way into the record as well. Definitely. Yeah. And it's interesting that you mentioned like kind of being a little bit like extra, Like I feel like with the instrumentation, like almost every time I listen to the album, I notice a little something different. Oh, thank you. 
yeah, there are like a million layers. It's, it's an album to listen to multiple times because just when you think you've heard all the guitar tracks that there are, there's probably another guitar track underneath <laughs> or like an organ or, you know, a different bass player. <laughs> um, can you talk a little bit about that like process of experimenting and like adding those layers and everything? Yeah, um, it, it was a really lengthy, laborious process. Honestly, we started out making pretty intimate demos of just like, you know, acoustic guitar or harp and vocal and a click track. And that's pretty much it. And those were like the little skeletons that we decided to build the songs on. We would have the tempo, the lyrics, the melody. That was pretty much all. Um, And then from there, we put heads together on what are all the layers going to be on this song? And sometimes we were right. Sometimes we weren't. Like some songs we were like, let's try putting keys on this later. And then once we put keys on it, we realized, you know what, let's take them out and let's keep it really stripped down. Um, and then other times we, we did 10 times more than we originally thought we were going to do. So it was kind of like a trial and error thing. Um, so yeah, we'd start with those skeleton tracks and then we'd put down, uh, you know, drums and percussion, then bass, then keys. Then we'd go back and re-record, you know, the acoustic and electric guitars, go back and re-record the vocals. Um, and then oftentimes we thought, you know, let's throw in, you know, some organ. On Narcissus, we were like, we want a really shiny mandolin sound. On a few of the tracks, we had a violin player come in and, and add on on top. So it was kind of like building this really multi-layered layer cake, uh, Great British Bake Off style, until <laughs> um, we got to the final product. And how does that um, affect the vibe of like the live show? That's interesting. Cause yeah, I mean, I feel like I have at this point three different setups for live shows or even four, we played some trio shows. Like I have my full band four piece uh, live setup that we did at our album release show at Mercury Lounge. And that sound really comes closest to replicating those big rock songs that you hear on the record, like Born and Bred, uh, Narcissus, Deep Well Song, those like really heavy songs. Um, and then I end up playing actually a lot of shows as a duet, a duet with Graham Richman, um, where it's just two guitars or guitar and harp. And the, those songs really work well with songs like Labor Day, Pity Party. Um, and, and it ends up being like almost a completely different set between those two setups. Mm-hmm. Um, but both kind of have their pros because um, the, the duet or playing as a solo artist um, sounds really folksy and you really grab onto the storytelling in that. Um, and then when we play as a full band, it's just, it's a party. <laughs> um, so I like having both and I think there are merits to both. Mm. Um, but with this album, it's been really fun to have, uh, to do our summer tour as a full band. I'm sure it like definitely helps with the, uh you know, stopping things from seeming mundane for you and also for like the audience, for people who end up seeing you more than once, like being able to get those sort of different experiences must be really cool. Totally. And I think that there are a lot of people who, like I road tested a lot of these songs um, in during solo shows from 2017 to now. So there are probably people who heard me play Deep Well Song, just myself and the harp, uh, back in 2017 that have now gotten a chance to hear it as a full quartet. Um, and it, the song is the exact same song at the same time. It's a completely different song. <laughs> so it's fun for me to be able to be, to do both. 
For sure. Yeah. And could you talk a little bit about like that process of road testing? Because I feel like that's something that doesn't really happen that often these days with artists being scared of like cell phone videos leaking and people, you know, kind of like spoiling the song when it's not finished. Yeah. I mean, I might feel differently about this uh, once I'm as famous as Beyonce or something. (laughs) Um, But at the moment, I really trust people to do what they want with the song. Um, And what that means is like, sure, most people will throw up an Instagram story and share it with their friends. And I feel like that just gives me an opportunity to reach more people. So I try not to worry too much about early versions getting leaked out. Um, And and on the flip side, if people really are keeping track of every version of a song, that means they're a deep fan (laughs) and they're really invested in seeing the song's evolution. So that's fine by me. Um, But yeah, it's interesting to me how a song changes in the in my emphasis in my performance in how the band chooses to interpret it over time um and that's something that i really embrace like while i am the sole songwriter of these songs that doesn't mean that i know the definitive version like i think the definitive version is something that gets built over time by both myself and the band and in some ways the audience contributes to that um, because things that people respond to will kind of will kind of uh, build a set around that Yeah. And could you talk a little bit, I know like you kind of put a lot of um, emphasis on kind of like creating a vibe in the studio. Um, I know I read about like being barefoot and like having dark, like having it dark with like string lights and stuff like that. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. You know, what's interesting is when I was writing Hard One, I got a free uh, workshop in the Meisner acting acting technique, and I'm not an actor by any means, but I found it so helpful um, just in the in the short amount of time that I was able to learn about it, um, that it's a technique that encourages you to dig deep into your own personal experience for every performance. Um, so like you may be playing a character that you can't relate to, but you have experiences that draw on those same emotions that the character is experiencing. Um, And so I try to do something of the same thing when I'm singing a song, uh, either at a live show or in the studio. I try to go back into my emotional experience of where I was when I wrote the song, get back to that place um, so that I'm able to perform it with the same raw intensity that I felt uh, and that drove me to write it. Um, And that can be a tough thing to do, especially when some of these songs draw on extremely negative experiences like heartbreak and loneliness and self-doubt. Um, I have to kind of medit- meditate and quiet myself and return to the place that I was when I wrote it. Um, so to be able to be that vulnerable to do that, I need to know that I'm with extremely trusted collaborators and people that are going to be be there to do their job while I'm doing my job. Mm-hmm. Um, I need quiet. I can't have people wandering in and out, you know, like I know some artists go into the studio and it, and have friends and collaborators come in. And when I'm recording really anything that I'm recording, I need to be mostly alone, like myself and a producer. Um, and so I need to like really be able to get to that headspace to be able to perform it at the level that I want to. Yeah. So, um, like based on like being alone with like during your performances and stuff, how does that affect like the live show? Like, and your mindset during that those times yeah I mean I feel like in a lot of ways I 
am completely present with the audience and completely connecting, but I'm also like completely within myself. I don't know what the magic is that lets this happen, but there, it is sort of the calmest and the quietest that I'll ever feel. Um, at the same time that it's completely chaotic and there, there can be tons of people around like looking at you, you have to find a way to be present with yourself um, and act as though you're all alone in the studio, even though a ton of people may be there. Yeah. Is it sometimes like hard for you to get into that mindset? Yeah. I mean, I, I used to have terrible stage fright. I don't as much now, but I think it's just something that I developed to like be able to keep myself company when I was scared. Um, like I used to be really scared of auditions when I was little. And I, I think I've had to develop this as like a technique to really be able to get there, even if I'm nervous. Um, so yeah, it can be tough, especially like with everything that can happen on the road, like you were caught in traffic for eight hours and then you have to like jump out of your car and perform. Like it's going to be really tough to get to that space where you're like vulnerable and relaxed and open. Um, so I really do try to, I don't really meditate formally, but I do try to like take deep breaths, do like really positive self-talk, you know, talk myself up in the mirror to the point where I can just really feel present with myself. Yeah, and, and hopefully those are the times when the, the audience have a good vibe so you can kind of feed off that too. God, yeah, it helps so much when people are actually like attentive. Um, and and it's funny because I sometimes people tell me they don't, they're like, oh, I didn't know you could see us. I feel like I can always see people. <laughs> you can always read if people are like actually there with you or if they're just completely zoning out. <laughs> yeah, I've definitely seen like artists before kind of tweet like snarkily at the end or like after a show and be like yeah a person in the front row who was mouthing around around to all the lyrics we could totally tell that you didn't know the words <laughs> i okay i am not yet at the point where i can uh poo poo that person because at least they're trying <laughs> <laughs> what i can't st- there i've had a few shows where someone in the front row was napping and oh, wow. that hurts my feelings but you can you can say the wrong words in the front row I, i'll sing along right with you <laughs> um and you mentioned uh like the kind of like the isolation of your in-studio performances um but also like the collaboration as far as like the instrumentals and everything um can you talk a little bit about like the differences between those two and like how um, how your work in the studio with the musicians that you work with kind of comes together? Yeah, I mean, I, I think everyone has a slightly different process with this um, and you kind of just have to see what works for you. I think when I collaborate with other instrumentalists, the main work that's that I have to do is just in choosing the right person. Um, because when they get in the studio, like who knows what they're going to play, right? You can kind of give someone a rough idea. You can give someone an outline, you can give them reference tracks. Um, and someone who is astute will pick up on that and come in really prepared, but everyone's going to have a slightly different interpretation. So I like to work with people where like, even if I, even if I said nothing, they would still play something great. Mm. Um, and even if I didn't give them any input, they would play something great. Um, but that being said, I do have a lot of opinions. Um, so I feel like the, the sort of method that we go by is always to have someone play one or two takes with no, uh, no comments, no pre-instructions, just like what is your first instinct of what to play? And often a lot of that 
stays in the final take. And then if there's something that I really had in mind or an artist I particularly wanted to try to emulate or a sound that I really want to get towards, then I'll start giving them some notes. Like, And, and it's often like really, uh, really helpful descriptions. Like, can you play that a little bit more dark? Could, <laughs> could you make that one a little more shiny? Can you do like a little more fun? Like play it like, you know, Tom Petty would play it, right? Like <laughs> things like that where they get, they have a lot of room for interpretation. Mm-hmm. So I try to give people a ton of leeway to do creatively what they do best. And that's often how you're going to get the best performance out of them. Yeah. I've definitely heard um, like a few bands probably talk about, you know, kind of going into the studio, especially when you like bring in like strings or an orchestra or whatever, kind of letting yeah. them do their thing the first time. And then, but having something in the back just in case, because you know that they, they'll be able to knock it out right away. So that that's, sounds like a really good um, like way to do it for sure. Yeah. And I think that uh, Nick had a really great sense of that when, I was doing takes when I was recording and he was producing and he would, I I would often do take after take, take a break. Then he would, you know, I'd come in and we'd listen to everything and he'd just have one or two words of encouragement or like, Hey, this, this one was headed in the right direction. Why don't you try it one more time like that? Um, And we got to a point where he was pretty good at figuring out when I was, when I was going to be able to do one more and when I just needed to tap out. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, it's definitely really important to have those kind of like that, that that connection with the people that you're working with. Yeah, it can make or break the whole experience. Um, and then can you talk to me a little bit about being uh, like an independent country artist, which is kind of like, you know, country is like basically like the new pop. So what what is it like being, you know, kind of DIYing it in such a big genre? Isn't that so crazy? I often have the feeling about my career that at any moment now, like the real adults are going to step into the room and like, let me know what I should be doing because certainly I'm doing the wrong thing. Um, I really am just like feeling my way through and putting one foot in front of the other. Um, It is really scary that the stakes feel high because people love country music and there is an opportunity to reach a ton of people. Um, But, but there's no roadmap. Like you don't get an instruction guide of like, how to, you know, make good records, also take care of yourself, you know, reach a broad audience, but make sure you're being a good friend to your longtime fans. Like all of these things that we want to do as artists. Like I, I just wish there were an instruction manual on how to do it. Um, but I have great bandmates. I have great family. Like I have a wonderful publicist who is a family friend who's been with me for years, Christina Graham. Like I have people who help me get back on track when I'm just flailing, which has been really important. Um, But it's tough. Um, I think being like a small business of one is really scary because if you take the day off, you know, did did my competitor take the day off? No, they didn't. (laughs) There's that feeling that like you have to be constantly working and not only working on your craft, but on social media and booking shows and making sure you're applying for all the right festivals and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have had to grow in terms of my business mindset of putting myself as the top priority. Um, Cause that hasn't always come easily to me. Like I do have a tendency to just go, go, go try to do everything at once and then burn out. Mm-hmm. Um, and over the years I've kind of had to try to figure out 
when is it okay to just relax and take a few days and just not be checking my email, not be doing work stuff. Um, so that's been a, a learning curve for me. For sure. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure in one of the interviews I either read or listened to with you, you were talking about kind of like your approach to the business is more about servicing the music rather than like promoting yourself as a person. Um, could you talk a little bit about that mindset? Yeah. I mean, that's a self-protective thing for me for sure. Um, because I think if I felt like I was waking up every morning and trying to promote myself, me, Lizzie Quinlan, and that there was no separation between that person and, you know, Lizzie know the business, I think it would feel so all consuming and so scary um, that I wouldn't be able to take it because there's just so much rejection and there's so much disappointment that you can go through um, as a musician that if it all feels personal, it's brutal. Um, so even though Lizzie No and Lizzie Quinlan really are the same person, it's really important to me to feel like there is some separation between my art and myself and my, you know, my business and myself. Um, because if there's no separation, that also means that you never get to be off. You never get to just like go on vacation or just, you know, bum around doing nothing <laughs> because you're always like, you should always be creating content for social media or you should always be writing and, you know, people love to say to songwriters, like anytime you go through a breakup or a hard time, people love to snarkily tell you like, well, it'll be a great song. <laughs> and I rebuke that mindset. Like I think I get to be a person when I need to be a person and I get to be an artist when I need to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and it's okay for me to decide which is which. Definitely. Yeah. And I think that compartmentalization works like on multiple levels because it also like allows people to judge your music rather than like judge you as a person. Totally. Yeah. I mean, a lot, there is a lot of personal material in my songs and, but, but they're not exactly me. Like there, you have a persona, you have a, you have a songwriterly voice that you wouldn't use in your personal life. And I even like, I wear different clothes on stage than I wear off stage. Mm -hmm. And I think it's important to signal to people like I I'm a person, you know, I'm not a, I'm not this like, uh, I don't know. I'm not an object. Mm -hmm. Um, like I have, you know, I have some of myself in these songs, but there's also things that I keep for myself. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm sure like having the band surrounding you also helps with that kind of distinction as well. And then I know I've saw a couple things about you kind of saying how you had like a hard time or how it was kind of like a challenge for you to get started in music just because you never really kind of saw the representation or like you didn't quite like have that community. And it seems like since then you've, kind of grown into that on your own. Can you talk a little bit about um, that process? Yeah, I mean, I, when I was growing up, like the only Black woman that I knew of playing the type of music that I now play was Tracy Chapman. Of course, there were many others, but I really wasn't exposed to them. And we really are underrepresented in this genre, even though, of course, Black people are at the root of so much of Roots in Americana and country. So I just didn't, it's not that I thought, oh, I can't be a country singer. It just never occurred to me like that's something you could do. Because it's already a pretty outlandish thing to think to yourself, like, I'm going to sing for a living. I'm going to write songs for a living. Like, that doesn't, that doesn't feel like a real achievable job goal. <laughs> um, so it just took me a while to kind of give myself permission. And it, and it wasn't until... Um, I don't know, I want to say 2012 or 2013 when I first heard about Valerie June. Um, 
that it, that it really did click for me. Like, oh, this is possible. Like there are people doing this and you could be one of them. And that's when I kind of gave myself permission to dream that it would be possible. Um, and since then, it's just been a process of reaching out because the, the issue is not that there aren't people of color or, you know, black women in particular making country music. It's just a question of like, who do you know? And who are you getting the chance to see? And I'm so glad that, you know, so many black women are crushing it right now in country and Americana, um, still underrepresented, but we're definitely making progress. Um, and on this upcoming tour, it's like, it just takes, it takes years to build these networks of people that you know, um, that have similar experiences to you that are in your genre. And like, this summer and, and fall tour, I'm playing with a ton of Black artists. I played with Queen Esther. I'm going on tour with Llewellyn Moss. We're playing with Sunny Ward, Nickel and Rose. Like it's our, that list of friends is just growing longer. Mm-hmm. So it's just about making friends in your <laughs> genre. That's awesome. Um, and I know we had talked a little bit before about kind of like how popular country music is. Um, as far as like the independent side of it, how have you found like the audiences and that stuff to be? That has been one of the best parts of doing this job. I really feel like folk Americana and country audiences are like some of the most welcoming. Um, And people like show up to shows, people buy CDs, people are attentive. People really care about quality songwriting. and they care about the storytelling. So I often, I mean, from time to time, I do play those bar shows where you're competing with whatever sports game is on, and that can be kind of soul crushing. But I also get to play a lot of rooms where people just sit quietly and listen and often sing along. And they'll often come up to you after and, and say like, oh, I love, you know, I loved this song and I love this lyric. And here's another artist that I'm listening to. Have you heard of them? That like, you can tell they're really engaging with the music. And another thing that I'll say about um, Americana audiences is I feel like they're really an all ages crowd. Like you have people that bring their kids to shows. You have people that bring grandma and grandpa, like it is all ages. And that kind of gives me hope for the longevity of, of hopefully what will be a long career for me. Um, there isn't that same value that there might be in pop of like being young and cute though. That is still an issue. Like there is still, you know, prejudice everywhere, but I I do feel like in Americana people do really value their elders Mm -hmm. and they value voices that have been around the block. Mm -hmm. And can you, I mean, the way you're kind of talking about it is like kind of, like about like the humbleness about it in some ways. Um, yeah. Can you like compare that to like the themes of like how you address vanity on the album? Oh yeah. I mean, it's funny because it is a genre that values authenticity and humbleness, but I think there are also like Casey Musgraves is a great example of someone who's bringing glam into country. And I think, it's great that we're getting a chance to see that there are a lot of different ways to be a country artist um, and that it's okay to have sort of a hip hop sense of talking up about yourself (laughs) instead of talking down about yourself. Like you can do both. Um, Like you can say, I'm the best and look at me, like look at my face um, and still be a country artist. Mm -hmm. That's something that I'm like figuring out still. Um, But I think it, 
has taken me a while to decide like, it's okay to like wear a fancy outfit to my country show. Mm -hmm. Um, And I, I, I haven't quite thought this out my master's thesis on the topic will come soon, but I do think that there's a connection between country becoming more open to women and queer people and country music being more open to glam. Like, I think it's going to be a good thing to see more sparkle and more, uh, you know, playfulness in the country genre. And that's something that I wanted to play with on vanity. And it's something that I play with like on stage in my persona and my look. So um, it's definitely something that I'm playing with right now. Interesting. Yeah, I mean, that makes sense. I think that also probably will help with like, like you were saying before, like kind of longevity of careers, just like not having to take yourself kind of quite as seriously in some ways and being yeah. able to kind of express yourself in other ways. I think that definitely is kind of a reviving thing for the genre in some ways. Yeah, I feel that way too. Like, I think I early on felt so like, bullied by that concept of the like dude sitting alone you know on the open mic stool (laughs) sadly playing his guitar with a you know a hat covering his face like almost as if to say like don't look at me like I'm not a human body I'm just a song and a soul like that's so like annoying to me that that's the standard for what (laughs) country music should be like I think you should you should get to like have confidence and have fun and be playful and wear a sparkly outfit if you want to um, and still be considered just as serious as the next guy. For sure. Um, And I know this kind of ties in with something that I read that you said kind of about being um, creative in a form in like a song form that's kind of more simple or strict. Um, Can you kind of talk about that, how it plays into your music? Yeah. I mean, I don't know why this is, but I have just always loved playing with words like a puzzle. Like I do love the idea that country music is kind of conservative in its form, not in, not in terms of its politics, but in terms of, you know, you're supposed to have that rhyme at the end of the line. You're supposed to have a chorus that's catchy and rhymes. Like there are certain things you're supposed to have. And so I've had a lot of fun trying to master that form and see how many, you know, it, you can play the game of like, how many internal rhymes can I get? How, how strictly can I stick to this form while also telling a story that only I could tell? Like, how can I fill myself into this very strict framework? Um, so that I feel like has, was, is like the foundation of my songwriting. And then there are times when once you've figured out what the rules are, you can have fun trying to break them. And one way, uh, one time I was trying to play with it was on my song Born and Bread. I kind of set myself the challenge of writing a song where the verses didn't rhyme and there was no chorus um, and try to still make it catchy. And like, what is, what is the content that makes a song catchy if it doesn't exactly rhyme and there's no repeating lyrics on the chorus? And that's what I came up with. And I ended up trying to just stick in as many specific very mundane details as possible uh, to make like kind of like a norm core rock song. Yeah. I mean, I think that that um, experimentation is like really cool and must be fulfilling as an artist as well. Thanks. Yeah. It's it, that, that song was, was a lot of fun. It, it really can be fun to break the rules if you actually know what the rules are. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like if you're not just flailing, if you actually, if you try to figure out what you're doing before you can, before you uh, completely, 
go off the track. Hello again. The interview is nearly over, but before we wrap up, I want to quickly shout out Half Access. Half Access is a super cool nonprofit dedicated to making live music more accessible. One of their biggest accomplishments is their crowdsourced database featuring an ever-growing list of music venues and information on how accessible they are so that showgoers with disabilities are able to properly prepare themselves for the concert ahead of time. Their website also features blog posts, interviews, and plenty of resources on how to help spread the word and find ways to improve the venues and concert experiences to make them more inclusive for all those involved. They recently posted a Twitter thread with all of the best ways to support the organization, which will of course be linked in the show notes. Half Access is doing important work, so let's all give them a little love. To sort of start to wrap things up a little bit, um, could you tell me about just like a recent um, challenge and success that you've like faced in, with your music? Ooh, yeah. I think one challenge that I'm that I'm dealing with now is like what do I do next because I think I think of every album as not only a project unto itself but a little bit of a proving ground for the next thing um and on you know on hard one I kind of looked at those songs and I was like what do I want to replicate on the next album and what am I kind of done with for now um and you take the things that you want to continue and develop further and you, you work them out on the next album. Um, and so I'm doing that right now with Vanity where I'm like, okay, which of these songs do I want to kind of evolve and, and, and work in this same mode for the next thing? And I haven't figured that out. Um, I think that I could do like a really Nashville country album. Um, I could do something a little more pop. I could do something that's like a lot of strings um, and kind of, do some experimental like uh, string arrangements and have it be like kind of a wacky alt rock thing. Like, and so I haven't quite figured out what I want to do next, which makes it hard to write. (laughs) Um, So I kind of have to figure that out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then one success that is harder for me to come up with because I am negative. (laughs) Um, I think a success if I may say so, is that I feel like the nine songs on Vanity, like each one is is quite different and has its own story to tell and sounds really different, but they all are like variations on a theme. Like I didn't want to write a song that sounded like nine of the same song. Mm-hmm. Um, and I always want every song to feel like it got what it needed in terms of the arrangement. And I feel really proud of how we were able to put like Phantom Limb and Pity Party and Loyalty, you know, all on the same album with like Channels and Matthew, that they're like, that we didn't rein ourselves in on any arrangement. That's something that I'm really proud of. That's great. Yeah. I mean, I, I've already mentioned kind of like the, how much I enjoy that. And like, I feel like the production on the album is like, some of the best I've heard all year for sure just like oh the thank way you I'll sounds. report back to the team <laughs> <laughs> so yeah I would definitely count that as a success as well <laughs> um, thank you so much and then I've, I've been stealing my final question from Ron Funch's podcast um, and asking for just like a piece of advice or something that you've been thinking about lately um, either about music or just life in general yeah um how does this catch me off guard? It's such a good question. 
Something that I've really been focusing on lately is trying to remain present while walking. I think that like, I don't want to be like you young kids are all in your phones because I also am in my phone all the time. So I am just as guilty. Um, but it can be really refreshing to either take the subway or go for a walk and actually look up and look around. Like I've recently been in my neighborhood and realized like, I don't actually know. I don't actually recognize quite a few buildings in the skyline. Mm -hmm. Um, and some of my best ideas come to me while I'm walking. And I think walking is a great meditative practice. It helps you like get into a rhythm that can let your thoughts wander in a way that we don't really get to that often when we're really busy and we're really connected all the time. So my advice would be, yeah, go walking, look around, walk for longer than you, than you need to. Yeah. I mean, I, um, actually two times a day on my 15 minute breaks at work, I go for a walk down the street and I definitely do that sometimes. Like just kind of make sure that I'm looking at stuff, not just like looking at the ground or like stuck in my head and stuff. It's powerful. I write a lot of songs while walking. The last dear listener episode five of fly on the call is now coming to an end. I hope you enjoyed listening in on this conversation with Lizzie No, and I strongly encourage you to check out her new album, Vanity, right this second, whether you have before or not. Go on, get! Oh, you're still here? In that case, I'd like to extend a thank you, as always, to The Alternative for helping to promote the show, Kaylin West of Tiny Stills for the theme song, and Michaela Jane Palermo for the artwork. Please follow the show on Twitter and Instagram at flyonthecallpod. Feel free to reach out to me at any time on there or via email at flyonthecallpod at gmail.com. Every Monday, I post a hint at that week's guest, and the first person to get it right will get to hear the episode early. It's a fun little thing I do, and I'd love to be able to start handing out that prize. Thank you, dear listener, for spending the time with me, and I hope you have a wonderful rest of your day. Clark. I'm Barbara Ann Wild. And we are The Honest AF Show. Our podcast is real honest conversation with our celebrity friends and pros. Covering our anything but average rock and roll lifestyles. All while tackling the hell that is aging and the battle of beauty. Oh yeah, nothing is off the table. The Honest AF Show is available wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> <laughs>